The Academic Podcast Agency. Climate change. Ooh. I love the warm <laughs> and uh, the cold. I, I like I like uh, when it's cold in February, January, March. But uh, climate change. I, the, the question you're probably asking is, why is the weather so screwed up? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the pollution. You mean, I mean, the oil industry, is a, it's a great thing. And we all like to drive. I have a vehicle. I like to drive. But sometimes I wonder, you know. But I think the pollution has plays a big part. That's why the... Uh, environmentalists are fighting against the pipeline the oil pipeline I believe although I don't I can't see inside a politician's head but you know that's the message that I'm getting so I think I think the pollution has a lot to do with the weather and it has been for years already well it affects everything the water, the weather, even the sun. Okay, my name's Ernie Gambler, and I'm originally from Calling Lake, Alberta. I was born there, born and raised. Jesus signed my pardon. This I surely know. Climate change means many different things to many different people. For this episode of the Glass Bead Game, I've come to Alberta, Canada, home to the third largest oil reserves on the planet to try and understand how we reconcile the ambitions of big energy with the need for a global ecology. And to ask the diverse members of this vast Canadian province, what exactly does it mean to be rich in natural resources? I met Ernie Gambler, an indigenous musician whose ancestors were the original custodians of this land, playing his country songs in the subway of Alberta's capital city, Edmonton a city boasting the largest shopping mall in North America and located about 300 miles south of Fort McMurray and the infamous Canadian tar sands. The tar sands are so politically contentious because they represent a story of both economic success and environmental disaster to the people living here. This in turn exaggerates the contradictions between the values of a modern city and those of a pristine wilderness populated by indigenous cultures whose traditions, knowledge and stories stretch back over 10,000 years. The Native American author Thomas King has written, the truth about stories is that that's all we are. In this regard, the stories that we tell each other in comprehending climate change will ultimately dictate what climate change is and what should or shouldn't be done about it. And so, as our global population increasingly chooses to urbanize, and our collective need for energy continues to intensify, how do we understand our relationship with the natural world, that despite its distance, continues to sustain us? The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is... Glass Bead Game. My dear friends, investigate and engage.
We lived at home. We lived with our grandparents. My father's father was very old. And I heard somebody say that he was 112 years old when he passed. One of the things that I loved about that old guy was the room would be uh, semi-dark, like sort of like candlelight, candlelit room. And he would tell his story at night. Sometimes we're already in bed. And he would talk about ancient times. And those are what they call legends passed on from way back. It was just a magical time. So long ago, Hills gave us a bunch of laws and a bunch of teachings. It gave us abundance of seafood and abundance of food and medicines on land. Because some of us weren't listening, he sent a message with Raven saying that he's going to cause a flood to wipe those of us out that are paying attention to those laws and teachings anymore. But those of us that are, eat this warning now. First Nations, indigenous I like, native, any one of those fits me perfectly. Uh, my grandparents, my parents, they spoke a lot of Cree around the house. But like I say, my mother took a little bit of time took me and my older brother to the sides and taught us a few English words so we would understand. I think they, they realized as, I, as I'm growing up, I'm going to need to learn how to speak this language, English. And sad, sadly enough, at this day and age where we are now, we've lost our language. The young people, they, they, don't, they don't speak Cree at all. Even if they speak Cree, it's not Cree. It's, it's broken between English, Cree. They made up these words. This is a half-breed between the two. Yeah. So this territory right here that we're in is what is called Treaty 6 territory. I want to just acknowledge that we are on First Nations territory, that it was traditionally the people of Papas Chase First Nation that occupied this particular territory. Canada, as you probably already know, signed treaties with some First Nations people. So some of Canada has treaty arrangements over it, numbered treaties, and some parts of it don't. And those treaties embed certain kinds of relationships between the colonial government and those First Nations people. My name is Marguerite Stewart Harawira, and I am an Indigenous scholar at the University of Alberta. I work with some of the people in Treaty 8. Fort McMurray is Treaty 8 land. And I work with some of the people in organisations that are helping to work at that interface between First Nations and the land and the water and the environment. For the First Nations communities that I work with, the issues are so complex. So, for instance, oil production uses an obscene amount of water. Who has access to the water and under what conditions? 
and where do they sit in relation to everybody else that has access to the waters. So these are really complex issues and they do sit at the intersection of economic and energy development. We need money to put gas in our tanks, put oil in the motor. Energy causes the wheel to go around, but money greases that wheel. So it's necessary to have both. And I like all the things that uh, energy can do. And so First Nations people here are in a particularly contradictory and, and tension-ridden place because they are often caught in this binary, really, around um, economic development and getting out of poverty on the one hand and finding ways to protect and maintain their cultural integrity. Of course, the earth also was healthier way back. The water was pure. And I, I'm talking this, this in my time. In my 20s, I saw that. Make tea, whatever. Cook with the water. We can't do that now. It's polluted. Pretty bad. And like everybody else, we got bottled water. So we've got to be careful. So Naomi Klein and mm. her book, This Changes Everything. Very accessible. Very it's accessible. It's really important. Yeah. yeah. One of the statements she makes at the end of that book, in no small way the actions of indigenous peoples and the decisions of Canadians to stand alongside them will determine the fate of the planet. Um, which is obviously a huge responsibility I wonder what you thought of that statement and statements like that, the idea that Indigenous groups have a responsibility to the rest of us. I do believe that Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities are the last bastion of defence. It's by refusing to allow our land to be ploughed up for oil and gas, by refusing to allow the land to be... Uh, appropriated for the kinds of fossil fuel development that is causing so much damage, that we have some hope alongside further development of these amazing other technologies that are so ripe and so ready. Um, but is that enough to turn a, the political will? I don't think so. I fear for the immediate future because the, the power of the groups who are so heavily invested in continuing to frack, continuing to extract, continuing to find new uses for oil. So if we can't use it for transport, we'll invent something else. So we'll still keep doing what we're doing. We'll just find new uses for it. The power of that is enormous. Mining operations in Alberta are a lucrative and controversial site of carbon extraction. The majority of the oil produced in Alberta is transported overland in pipelines to the US. Territorial disputes over these pipeline routes exaggerate tensions of land ownership between the Canadian government and indigenous peoples, whilst environmental science warns us that exploitation of Alberta's carbon deposits will release enough greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to ensure a global temperature rise of two degrees the figure commonly understood to be detrimental to our continuing way of life. 
research recently by uh, Christopher McGlade and Paul Eakins showed what percentage of resources have to stay in the ground if we're serious about keeping warming below two degrees. And basically, in Canada's case, that you can't exploit the tar sands. There isn't there isn't scope for that to be consistent with the two degree target. My name is Peter Newell. I'm professor of international relations at University of Sussex. So these sorts of struggles, wherever they're taking place, I mean, for me, it tends to be about poorer communities that are being asked to or not being asked, sometimes being displaced to make way for these new investments, fighting back. So it's not about indigenous or non-indigenous or north or south. It's, it's about poorer communities often fighting for protection of their resources, but doing so in ways that have huge climate benefits, because if they are successful and if they do manage to keep those resources in the ground, that's a massive success. So for me, it's thinking about they're in the front line of it, often risking their lives to try and protect those resources. But elsewhere, there'll be NGOs trying to lobby for, um, banks and funders not to put the money into these projects in the first place. That's another important part of it. But it could also be the role of governments to say some of these areas are just off limits. You know, They don't have to issue the licenses for companies to operate in those areas if they think they're particularly fragile ecologically or will have serious social impacts. So again, it comes back to this discussion about what are the, the different roles of, of different actors. You know, You need to push all those pressure points simultaneously fight it on the ground, lobby in the boardrooms, shareholder activism, and put pressure on governments not to allow this to take place on their on their territory. So you can have those things happening simultaneously. And depending on your theory of change and how you think this comes about, all of those things are, are important. Theories of change, as well as theories of communication, would appear to be at the heart of understanding what climate change is. And yet, at a global level, there exists so much variation in how we experience our own climate narrative that a common language of change can often seem elusive. If you wouldn't mind starting, David, just so I can get a level. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, nine, eight, six, seven, five, four, three, two, one. I wanted to explore the psychological relationship human beings have with nature and to further understand the role of story in that relationship. Much-loved naturalist and broadcaster David Attenborough seemed like the perfect person to ask. OK, and how do you describe your profession, David? Broadcaster. OK. Could you just say that for me in one sentence? My name is David Attenborough, and I'm a maker of television programmes. Thank you very much. <laughs> we have to regard the world as, as one coherent ecosystem. You can't get away from it. Of course, you, at your immediate doorstep, you, you have more direct action than you do on something over a, th a thousand miles away. But nonetheless, the unity of the ecosystem is perfectly clear. Do you think a reduced relationship with the natural world, in the context that well over 50% of the globe are now urbanised, do you think that's altered us psychologically? Well, if it has, it's altered um, a, a great section of the human race for the past 200 years. Um, I mean, the Industrial Revolution, um, which is, what, 250 years old, um, produced a huge section of the public who were totally out of touch with the natural world. And, uh, and I can only say that I think that's an impoverishment for, for them personally, that... Uh, as well as affecting their their decisions as to uh, if, if if indeed they had a, a say in what the politicians were doing, um, but it is a, it is a huge loss. Our understanding of ecology makes it absolutely clear that there are hardly any microsystems anymore. We are one very very complicated system. I mean, it's not so long ago that that 
responsible town councils poured untreated sewage into the sea on the grounds that the sea was very big and it washed it all away. There was no problem. And, uh, and it wasn't only sewage, but it was always industrial waste. And the, the consequences we now know, uh, that, um, that if you put it on one side of the Atlantic, the other side's going to feed it in the end. People write to me and say you know, that uh, uh, in moments of grief, the only thing that they find is that the only solace they find is, is by, by going to the natural world, or indeed in, in putting on natural history programs on the television. Um, and that must mean something to the psychologist. Uh, uh, and I'm, I believe it to be the case that it's difficult to be a fully rounded human being unless you have some kind of feeling of the natural world of which you are a part. Calling Lake, at one time, that was paradise to me. Not too many people can boast they were born in the country. It's at my age, anyway. People older, yes, but I'll be 69 this month. Well, technologically, we have progressed. But in the primitive way of life where it was man and nature, I think we've gone backwards to a certain degree. The unshakable belief in economic growth is starting to be shaken. People want to see progress. They want to see improvements in well-being, for sure. The argument is whether you can get those without relying on conventional patterns of economic growth. So a lot of people now talk about prosperity without growth. People are becoming more aware of alternative ways of thinking about, about prosperity and well-being that aren't just about more and more growth measured as GNP, you know, as throughput in the economy because that measures everything. So if there's more and more people involved in car accidents, taking more and more drugs because they're uh, depressed, that all counts as economic activity. That's all growth. <laughs> um, more and more people flying around the world on one measure is growth. Environmentally, that's a disaster. So we have to think a little bit more carefully, I think, about what counts as growth and differentiate it from what we collectively might think of as progress, you know, are we happier? Are we living better? Do we get more time with our families? Um, do we feel more secure? You know, different indicators which give us a sense of where we're at as a society and where, whether the policies that we have in place are helping to achieve those things. Because at the moment, the evidence is not that that's not the case. And that's why I think there is potential to challenge more orthodox ideas about growth. Welcome to this edition of the Angler Report. Hundreds Time to say no to the Keystone today. XL tar sands pipeline. Greenpeace activists call this a crime scene. We do not support the Keystone 25 XL demonstrators pipeline. occupied these oil sands in northern Alberta in Canada on Tuesday, unfurling banners and chaining themselves to equipment. The activists from Canada, the US and France banned production at the 155,000-barrel-a-day site. This morning, Secretary Kerry informed me that after extensive public outreach, the State Department has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. I agree with that decision. This morning, I also had the opportunity to speak with Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada. And while he expressed his disappointment, given Canada's position on this issue, 
We both agreed that our close friendship... But it's absolutely friends, evident, is it not, to almost anybody, uh, that the presidents, although they appear to be uh, omnipotent, simply aren't. I mean, they have uh, the Senate to deal with, and uh, and there are lots of other factors they have to deal with. And so they can't then... They don't have freedom of action that you thought they might have. Um, and certainly, um, it's absolutely clear that Obama has failed to get through uh, some of his most cherished policies, uh, simply because of the American system of government. Um, I have no doubt at all that he is profoundly convinced about the importance of conservation, about the dangers of climate change and so on. And what can he do about it? It's a question. And whenever he wishes to do something which in any way appears to um, affect the American economy badly, so that you spend more money doing those sort of things which don't have an immediate return, uh, he's, he's blocked. Going into Fort McMurray, I'd probably say I had close to $20,000 in debt. And I paid all those debts off in a matter of three to four months while still living very comfortable and just having a good time. My name is David Pauls, and I am a heavy equipment operator. I excavate existing pipelines for, for maintenance, and I backfill them. Fort McMurray is an oil city. Everything about the city speaks of oil. It has a nickname called Boomtown, because there was an oil boom in Fort McMurray itself, or surrounding area, I should say. I think people go there definitely for money. They go there for, let's say, 10 years and and save up a bunch of money. This way they kind of have a head start in life. Dirty oil is saying the footprint that you leave behind, right? People always say Fort McMurray is dirty oil. I, I completely disagree with that because there is definitely a lot more dirty oil in this world. Just, it's not put into the into the media as the dirty oil it's what the media brings out that's what that's what people believe people that had their land for hundreds of years in their in their family and their ancestors and all of a sudden now somebody wants to build a pipeline to it right obviously they have um, a connection with their land and they don't want a pipeline to go through however people want oil people have spoken and oil usage increases every year. All your, uh, your food that has been farmed has been farmed by, by tractors, which were uh, fueled by diesel. I'd say most people are not even aware of that most of the things in their households are made out of plastic. You know, what do you say to people that say, oh man, it's all, it's bad, it's bad for the environment and people shouldn't be doing that. Look, um, Fort McMurray shouldn't be there. Pipelines shouldn't be there. If there's a person that says no pipelines, no pipelines, I can't honestly take them serious. Because until they show with actions that they're completely against any oil products, then that'd be the day I would respect him and say, hey, but until then, you should have or serve it at gas stations that ask, do you agree with pipelines? And people that say no, well, they just don't get no gas. Simple as that.
And they pretty people pretty soon will be educated about pipelines. I'm pretty sure they'll be like, oh yeah, pipelines. They they bring a fuel here. That's right. This is this is how we live. We need oil so we can drive to work. We need oil literally for everything. The way I see it, things keep moving. In my early day, the day when I was a teenager, we were uh, pitching bundles into the thrash machine, and that separated the grain from the rest of it. Now they have combines. They've had combines for the last, what, 40 years? At least 40 years. So we don't need to be laboring anymore doing what we did before, although I would like to go back and do it every fall. Pointed to the mountain just north of our village here in Zao. And he said it would take you guys a few days to get to that mountain. And after those few days, you'll notice a welcoming figure standing on the horizon. And as you guys paddle closer and closer to that welcoming figure, you'll come to realize that it's Kwakakwa Iyech, their name for their beautiful stream. And that translates to the drinking one. So we did as we were told. We prepared all that food, wove the three different lengths of cedar rope, made sure the children were near the canoes at all times. Waited until we only had a small piece of land left, and then started paddling out towards that mountain Raven pointed to. But as we were paddling out towards that mountain, we got blown off course and we actually started paddling out towards the Gulf Islands. So there was a storm happening at that time. And as we were paddling out towards that way, a crow came and landed in an elite canoe and dropped in a Buddhist branch hopped up and did a perfect 90-degree turn away from that canoe. And at that moment, that captain knew that crow was there to guide us, so he turned and he followed, and the crow led us straight to the beauty tree on top of that mountain. Yeah, I was seeking an outlet for my music, and uh, Edmonton seemed to be the likely place at the time. And we're going back to early 60s, maybe 63. I got used to the bright lights. I think city life shines for most people at a certain point in our life. And then at a later point, we want to leave it and go back where we came from. And that's very unique. I think that's not just me, not just you. I think it's all people. I can't put my finger on what what is what it is that makes makes us leave home. Although not all native kids leave the country to come to the city. We got hired to do a gig in Little Buffalo, where he is the chief. And but Billy Joe was was one of the late latecomers. He he wasn't in school yet. He came along a little bit later. So I didn't know him, but I knew his brothers, and he was the guy that hired us. That's how where I met Billy Joe. Uh, my name is Billy Joe Labucan from Little Buffalo, currently the chief of uh, Lubicon Lake Band, and I'm also uh, an educator and uh, storyteller. Yeah, Little Buffalo is it's probably about 500 kilometers north of Edmonton here, and we're uh, 100 kilometers east of Peace River. We're hunters and trappers, and the main economy was fur-bearing animals. 
than oil industry, right? So we have a lot to do with this land and being the way Canada is, you know, but we, we never get the recognition for it. As a matter of fact, right now we're paupers on our own land. We can't access the resources of our own land. All the, the resources, the money that comes out of the resources from the land ends up in Ottawa. So we in turn subsidize Canada. They trickle back a little bit of money for us, just enough for us to fight with. Being in Little Buffalo in the area, which is our traditional land, there's like probably a dozen or more oil companies that are working in that area. Um, their shareholders, a lot of them, are foreign companies. You know, if they're not from Europe, they're from Asia. So there's a lot of foreign interest, and it's still that colonial mindset that's been there that the British started two or three hundred years ago, you know, where they go after the raw product, and, uh, and then they just literally take stuff out and don't really leave anything. They really don't care anything for the environment or the people, and they leave a huge mess you know, like there's spilled, oil spills right now, but there's also uh, contamination. Although we don't feel the effects of it quite as much as our neighbors do in northern Alberta, like the Fort Chippewan, for example, Fort Mackay, you know, they're, they're experiencing such high numbers of uh, cancer and they have three different cancers that are really devastating to them. And that's the chemicals and whatever else that they use, to, you know, to extract uh, the bitumen from the sand. When we signed the treaties, we did not give away the land or the resources. Those still belong to us. And we're at odds right now with the Canadian government because they don't recognize that fact. The Supreme Court of Canada would probably agree with us on that. Um, I mean, there's so many things that have happened here in Canada that are not right. You know, they're downright illegal. We have this idea that ecosystems are constructed in a very nice way, you know, that the outputs and inputs can be identified with precision and can be commodified. I come from a place where... Indigenous communities believe that ecosystems are socially produced between people and communities. So my name is Isabel Altamirano. I am Zapotec from southern Mexico, an indigenous scholar in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta. These preserved areas or forests have not been preserved just because ecosystems did the job, but because communities were involved in making that possible. So to pretend that we can commodify those forests and plants because of the kind of outputs and inputs they provide erases indigenous communities from these processes. And uh, that's hugely troubling for me. Citizenship has been based on this idea of private property, and it has been an essential way to participate in the economy. Indigenous people's notions of communal land didn't correspond with these notions of private property. Land is something that cannot be commodified. It's something else. My father or grandparents never really viewed the land as their 
possession and they didn't really have that concept of owning land, you know, rather that they belong to the land. So, and, and that is kind of carried on with the uh, uh, reserve system, you know, as being held in common. So most reserves across Canada now are held in common. So all the people own the land, you know, they, so they look after it together, you know, they're, but that doesn't mean that you can have your own chunk of land set aside for families to live on, right? Then they have a certificate of uh, possession that goes along with that. So it does work. For forests to have value, they need to be untouched, right? Like this idea again that ecosystems are separated from people. But in practice, they are not because we still require those people to take care of those forests. And we also continue to rely on these people getting some kind of income from not cultivating certain areas of those forests or not harvesting what they used to harvest or not hunting in those areas anymore. But we don't necessarily consider that when it comes to talk about what is an ecosystem. What I'm suggesting is that the recognition of communal land tenures is obscuring the, the labor that these indigenous communities have put into protecting this forest and continue to protect the forest. It's called Pitapan, or Coming of the Dawn. It's a solar project. There's 80 panels. It's 20.8 kilowatt. And uh, right now it's hooked up to the uh, health center. But we also have the converter hooked right into that, into the power grid. Yeah, it's brand new. Yeah, yeah. They finally uh, uh, did the pedestals and uh, the installation of the solar panels uh, about a month ago. And they're trying to change the mindset. And it's also um, for young people to know that we have to embark on a different future, being able to use energy in a good, safe way that's, that's beneficial to us and to the environment. At some point in time, I think even, say, 200 years ago, the world populations operated on a common sense where a lot of our practices were not detrimental to our earth. It's only been in the last 200 years that things have really gotten out of hand. You know, I mean, uh, uh, so instead of using, uh, say, natural medicines, we opt out to do uh, a lot of harmful medicines. Instead of using uh, natural resources, to the point where it, they're safe and ecologically sound, uh, we opted out to do something that's expedient but detrimental. Now, the truth is, the United States will continue to rely on oil and gas as we transition, as we must transition, to a clean energy economy. That transition will take some time. But it's also going more quickly than many anticipated. Think about it. Since I took office, we've doubled the distance our cars will go on a gallon of gas by 2025. Tripled the power we generate from the wind. Multiplied the power we generate from the sun 20 times over. Our biggest... The hope I have for the future uh, which will solve all these problems, it, well, putting it simply, is that we can produce energy from renewable resources cheaper than carbon-based stuff. And if you do that, uh, at a stroke, 
he will solve these problems, such as the tar sands, fracking, diesel engines, all the rest of it. I mean, that will, it will go. It requires, of course, not uh, not only the, the technology to produce the energy from renewables, but to store it and to try and transport it. If, if Americans could put a, a man on the moon in 10 years, I cannot believe that if you had an organized plan uh, of all the developed nations to develop, say, 2%... Uh, of their research budgets, which are already being spent on scientific research, into a, a focused and carefully prepared plan over 10 years to solve those problems of, of, of storage and transport and, and capture, uh, that, that can't be done. Floodwaters rose covered the land underneath the tree. Floodwaters kept rising, covered the tree itself, and still kept rising until we couldn't even see the tree underneath the water anymore. And it kept rising until there was about a meter and a half to two meters left of that cedar rope, at which point my ancestors were a little bit worried that they didn't quite prepare enough to survive the flood. But by that time though, the flood had already peaked and was starting to recede. The tree showed itself, and then the land underneath the tree showed itself. And our chief and council at that time got together and our chief says, well, we need to do two things. The first thing we need to do is name ourselves as a people. And the second thing we need to do is to do something to honor this tree. So one council member stood up and said, well, why don't we name ourselves Kuxanich to remind ourselves why this flooded happened. And if you translate Kuxanich into English, it translates to the merchant people. Our chief says, okay, now we're named. Now we need to do something to honor this tree. So now the council member stands up and says, well, why don't we promise that we'll not come down, we'll not use many of our ceremonial fires, and we'll not use many of our carvings until the end of time. And this was during a period where humans can speak to plants and animals and they can speak back to us. The biggest tree overheard us say this, and he says, well, if it wasn't for me, you guys would not be here. And if it wasn't for that tree, we would not be here as a people. And that is our flood story. I add that last little bit, our flood story, because there's some controversy going on right now within mainstream Christianity saying all indigenous peoples across the world had heard the story of Noah's Ark and adapted that story to suit them as a people. Our story is well over 10,000 years old. Our visitors haven't been in our territory for about 200 years. So there's a little bit of time difference there. This isn't a Christian... Thing. My name's John Bradley Williams. I'm Kusanich and Hose and community member of Sayal, knowledge keeper and a storyteller and an ethnobotanist. Growing up all my life I always hear, oh we need to go back to the old ways, we need to go back to the old ways so we can be the healthy, strong, powerful people that we were. Like, no, we don't need to go back to the old ways. We need to bring the old ways forward and make them present, more applicable to today, and so that it can continue to move forward. That's how I feel. Uh, there are other orations that are more political, that are more, some more spiritual, and those can take years. 
you know, when you ask somebody to tell you a story, you always go to the simplest because that's generally where you have to start, right? So when you hear these simple stories, they say, oh yeah, those are just like fables. But they, they don't realize that they're only dealing with the kindergarten level. They haven't gotten to the PhD level yet. And the PhD level, of course, is very complex and very time consuming. Someone has produced a statistic to say the series I did in 1980 um, had been seen by 500 million people. I don't actually believe that statistic. I don't know how on earth you could calculate such a thing. But it was certainly seen by a lot of people. And, and the fact is that people are now better informed about ocarpies and uh, birds of paradise and uh, coral fish uh, uh, and antelope and better than they've ever, ever been, ever been. And that must be a good thing. But with that, one hopes that somehow they will also get some understanding of the place in which humanity plays in the ecosystem and how we are totally dependent upon the natural world for every breath we breathe and every mouthful of food we eat. It's never left me. Calling Lake is in my soul. Although Edmonton has been the place where I've been for 45 years or so. When I go back to Calling Lake, I feel like I'm a part of creation. Was on one cold winter's 2014 and the decade that preceded it were the warmest years experienced since recorded temperatures began. However, 2014 has also been reported as a year in which global carbon emissions from the burning of fossil fuels did not increase. Whilst a large reason for this unexpected anomaly is understood as being related to China's investment in the production of renewable energies, this fact, coupled with President Obama's rhetoric about the necessity of transitioning to a cleaner energy economy, suggests that the world might just be at a tipping point as regards its relationship with carbon. The priorities of our world leaders over the next 12 months will inform a crucial part of our ongoing story with carbon and climate change mitigation. And for this reason, next month's episode of The Glass Bead Game will be focused on the Paris Climate Summit and the ethics of direct action. All contributors, academic profiles and relevant publications can be found listed on The Glass Bead Game website at www.theglassbeadgame.co.uk. And if you'd like to hear more episodes as and when they are released, why not subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, which can be easily done by clicking on subscribe at the top right-hand corner of the site. Your presenter and director for this episode has been Will Hood, and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Bead Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production. That's, <laughs> I muffed that one up. Can, can I do it again? Yeah, let's do it again because...